Today we move on in our examination of Joshua. We come to Joshua chapter 20. And if you've uh, been with us, uh, you know that uh, God's people have had the joy of seeing the Lord give them the promised land. They've driven their enemies out and uh, now they're settling the land. We've uh, looked for some weeks at uh, how God gave particular plots of land to different people to possess it. And uh, chapters 20 and 21 give us a bit more of uh, the administrative detail that would be necessary to live in the land. And today we come to this section on the cities of refuge. And this is, uh, again, one of those passages, you look at it, and on the surface you might say, uh, why does this matter, and how does it apply today? Uh, And we'll look at that in greater detail as we move forward, but just to give you some sense of the importance of this passage, in the mind of your God, it's good for you to know that at least on at least four occasions, he references the need for these cities of refuge before they get to this point in history. So Joshua is here with the people uh, at Gilgal in the middle of the land as they're getting ready to disperse everyone. And in the first half of this passage, you'll see that there are the instructions given once again for the cities of refuge. Then the second half of this short passage is actually uh, identifying these cities of refuge. But in Exodus chapter 21, immediately after the giving of the law, God tells his people, now you're, you're going to need to appoint a place of, of refuge so that these cases of difficulty that come in your land can be adjudicated. And then in Numbers chapter 35, there's a longer section on the cities of refuge and Moses teaching the people, here's what you need to do when you get into the land to set these up. Then in Deuteronomy, early in his sermon there in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Uh, Moses is recounting the history, how they did appoint three cities of refuge east of the river Jordan. And then uh, later in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, there's another extensive section on what this was all about, why it was that they needed cities of refuge. And so now it's finally time for these cities to be named and for this system to be instituted. And so hopefully we'll see as we move on through this exactly why it matters even for us still today. But we want to read chapter 20, these nine verses. Let's pray before we read. Lord, we do thank you that you have uh, told us that you're a refuge for us and that your word is refuge, that your city is a refuge to us. And so we pray that we would be blessed here today by your word as we contemplate it and that you would speak to our hearts and that you would lead us to the one in whom we ultimately find refuge. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. Joshua chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer shall return to his own town and to his own home to the town from which he fled. 
So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of the Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word. We pray that he'll write it on our hearts today and forever. Every child loves a good game of tag. And children, you know just as well as I do that when you're playing tag, uh, the adrenaline is pumping, you've got a lot of energy, you're trying to get away from the person who is it, and they're trying to get you so that you will be it. And when you're playing tag, one of the things that is often present or designated is home base, or maybe you just call it base. And you know that if you're touching base... No one can get you. It is a place of refuge. It's a place of safety. And so uh, you might be running and trying to stay away from uh, whoever is it. Your heart is pumping. You're breathing fast. They're just about to tag you, but you reach out and you grab hold of whatever object is base. And you're able to squeal with delight. And you're able to give thanks even as you pant for your breath because you know you're safe. Now, the rule might be that you're only allowed to be there for five seconds or something like that, but it is a place of safety. And we know the need that we have for refuge in life. Uh, This increases as you get older in life. When I was at Purdue University, uh, before they reconfigured some of the streets, uh, State Street uh, was four lanes of traffic going east east and west right through the, the center of campus. And of course, students are trying to get from one class to another. And one of my friends had to frequently cross State Street and he didn't have very much time. And uh, he, with a, a great sense of intensity, would talk about the refuge of the double yellow line right in the center of State Street. Sometimes you just had to go halfway and stand right there between the double yellow line and you knew that at least that was refuge for you. At least if you got hit, it was the driver's fault at that point and and not your own. But you know, we have even far more serious situations in life that require uh, great wisdom to know how to adjudicate these. And uh, we know that when the crisis hits, You need to have policies in place that provide for the protection and the safety of all of the parties involved. And one of the ways in which I saw this personally was uh, in the situation with Tommy Mangan, uh, our own uh, Tommy who was uh, shot in the line of service a few weeks ago. And I mentioned to Tommy and Emery that this illustration might show up, uh, but I went uh, to the hospital. And uh, as you know, uh, well publicized, uh, Tommy was uh, shot by an aggressor and a Tommy had to go then to the hospital and undergo surgery. Um, And 
I went to the hospital there uh, after midnight that night, and there were all of the officers who were present. And uh, finally, I was uh, taken to the room where Emery was, along with other family members. And uh, very quickly, uh, you began to, in the midst of feeling all of the intensity and the uncertainty of things, it became very apparent that there was one officer who had been placed in charge of everything that was going on. So there was the chaos of not knowing exactly what had happened to the perpetrator, Uh, the chaos of not knowing exactly how things were going in surgery. There were people who had been involved. There were other chaplains who were there. There was uh, just a, a lot of obviously energy and intensity and emotion. But this one officer had been placed in charge and it quickly became evident that she was highly competent. And she understood that they were also then in the nascent phases of a, uh, uh, the, the early phases of the investigation. And so even the things that were said in that particular setting uh, could be used in ways that people didn't necessarily intend it. And so she was a, a woman of great compassion and competence and could give each person who was sitting in the room exactly what they needed to know how to navigate an incredibly complicated situation. And my own heart and soul was simply washed over with gratitude to God for this one woman who the Lord had raised up at that particular moment in time. She was a great blessing. And this is the need that we have as humanity when crisis hits. We need systems that God has put in place. We need people of wisdom and of integrity to be raised up who are able to be somewhat outside of the emotion of the particular situation, to be able to bring order to uh, all of the needs and to be able to minister to all of those who are hurting. And, And the fact of the matter is this, that bad things are going to happen in life. Bad things are going to happen even amid the people of God. This is part of what it is to live in a fallen world. And so the Lord places such emphasis here in his scripture on the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. And what is it that he wants his people to know? He wants his people to know that he is a God who provides refuge. And he's a God who provides refuge for every single person who would come to him. Now you see here in verse three, it says they, that is speaking of these cities shall be for you a refuge. They're particularly in this case going to be a refuge for the person who has uh, committed manslaughter, someone who has killed someone unintentionally. But as we look at God's word, we recognize that there are three kinds of law in the old Testament simply by way of introduction here, we talk in terms of one category of law being the moral law of God. That's the Ten Commandments. These are the truths that never change. There's a second aspect of Old Testament law that is called the ceremonial law. And these were the laws of sacrifice and so forth that were used in the Old Testament to point people to the salvation of Jesus Christ that was going to come. And then we speak of a third category of law in the Old Testament, which is the civil law. That was the law that was given to help govern the people of Israel there in the Old Testament. 
And we, uh, as Presbyterians, and we confess this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we recognize that the civil law and uh, the, the matters here regarding cities of refuge would fall under this category of civil law. It doesn't apply directly to us today. In other words, our calling is not to take the state of Indiana and to appoint six cities of refuge and to follow these uh, instructions precisely. But what we do confess is that the general equity of this law is to be applied. That is that the basic truths and the principles should help to shape our laws here in our own state and nation if we're thinking rightly. Dr. Blackwood often used to pray this kind of way for our lawmakers, praying that they would take uh, their pens and they would dip their pen into the ink of God's word before writing our laws. In other words, the words aren't supposed to be exactly the same, but we should be learning from uh, the the truth of God's law and seeing how the, the general shape and the trajectory of these laws ought to shape our own And all of this is provided so that people in this civil context could know refuge, so that they could know safety, so that there could be good order. And as we look at God's law, even in the civil sense like this, we also recognize that through these, he is communicating gospel truth to us. The the things that we experience here in this life are not disconnected from spiritual things. So he's not saying, well, I'll give you the gospel sometime later. This is just stuff to help life go better. No, all of life is lived before the face of God. And so uh, we see the principles of his grace and of his salvation being worked out uh, in these kinds of instructions that he gives to us. So ultimately, the Lord wants us here to seek him and his refuge even as we seek justice and mercy in some of the most complex situations of life. One final thing to note here before we jump into this in terms of more detail is that in the Old Testament, we have these kinds of case laws. This is not to presume that the only kind of sin that might be covered would have to do with a manslayer in this case. The Lord is uh, giving his wisdom uh, with this particular kind of crime or this particular kind of uh, tragedy that happens in Israel and the judges in Israel would be required then to take the truth of God's word and to see this applied in a variety of ways. Now, again, maybe all of this seems a little bit too technical for you so far, but it's uh, really quite a fascinating thing that policies in life don't matter until they do, right? And then you want people who really know what they're doing. Because when someone is shot intentionally or unintentionally, that's not the time to say, time out, we've got to figure out what we're doing. That's the time when you implement the things that the Lord has given you to implement so that people can find refuge. And so this is why it is worth our time to consider these things today. So how is it that we as God's people uh, can find refuge in him, uh, even as we see it through this passage and and as it applies to all of life? We're going to look today at six abilities here, six words that all end in ability that I hope will help to unfold this and show us how it is uh, that we are to seek refuge in the Lord. And the first of these is we want to see the inevitability of the need for justice, and for refuge. The inevitability of the need. So I've already touched on it a little bit. We live in a fallen world. 
And if you go back to uh, Numbers chapter 35, you'll see one of the examples that's given there is you have a person who's uh, chopping with his axe and the axe head flies off and it hits his neighbor in the head and it kills him. This is a total, totally accidental kind of thing that happens. Uh, we, uh, we see other examples in uh, Deuteronomy of rocks being dropped on people, say over the edge of a cliff, and they didn't know somebody was down below. And uh, so now someone's dead, and what do we do? And uh, we know from the scripture that human life is so incredibly valuable because we are made in the image of God that when a life is taken intentionally, God says what is required is that human blood would be shed. You can go back to Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, where the Lord is communicating this uh, to Moses. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and you see that death was the requirement for Adam and Eve's sin. And now here God is saying, when there is murder that's committed, the case needs to be adjudicated, of course, but the death penalty was going to be required. But now what do you do in a case where it's an accidental death? And uh, someone who is uh, involved, uh, maybe a relative of the one who has been killed, may see himself to be the avenger of blood and seek immediately to put the perpetrator to death, the person who had caused this crisis. Now, we recognize that it's the character of God that, that drives the need for these kinds of penalties. And it's also the character of God that gives us a sense of his mercy and his desire that things be done justly. And so uh, we're, we're called here to listen to our God as he gives us instructions in the middle of these inevitable crises of life. And you might say, yeah, but this sort of thing would never happen to me. Talk to anyone who has been through a crisis. Very few of them expected immediately before that crisis hit that it was going to come. It has been said that all of us are just within 10 minutes of really destroying our whole lives. You may be driving down the road minding your own business as sort of best you can and you become distracted by something. Someone jumps out in the middle of the road and you simply can't get the vehicle stopped. Your life will be forever changed. These words are given for all of us because these kinds of traumas are inevitable as we live in this sinful world. And the Lord in his mercy and grace wants his people to have a place of refuge in these situations. So we need to know that these kinds of things are inevitable. And there's a, a reason then that we have policies for various kinds of things in life. Perhaps you've gone through fire drills in your home to teach the children. If the house catches on fire, where is it that you're going to go? How, which window do you jump out of? Where do you look for help? Where are we meeting afterward? Uh, we have uh, various um, uh, ways in which we set policies in advance, things like car insurance. And you place your car insurance and your registration in the glove compartment so that in that moment, when your blood pressure rises and you've been in an accident and you're not exactly thinking straight, you know exactly where things are. 
Uh, We have this kind of good order and we ought to be thinking about this in our own lives and in the lives of our families. Is your family well prepared for the kind of crises that may come in life? We can't prepare for everything, but we can do our best as a church. This is why we have a child protection policy. It's why we have a policy for uh, those who would uh, attend uh, the worship service here who maybe have been guilty of violent crimes or of uh, our sex offenders and these kinds of things. It's so that everyone who's connected might have appropriate refuge in the Lord. So it's just a word to say we ought to be praying for our leaders, whether in government or in organizations like schools and churches, that they would apply the wisdom of God for these sorts of inevitable uh, cases that will arise in this sinful world. We are called to be prepared in one sense for the worst and to know that these things will happen. But even more than that, we need to know that we have a Lord who is over all of those and who is a blessing to his people and that nothing is outside of his control. And so we're called, even in acknowledging that these traumas will come, to know that we have one in whom we find refuge, and who gives us help, and who gives us aid. Second thing we want to see here is the uh, instability of being left to our own emotions in terms of governing a situation like this. So you have someone who's just had his brother who has been killed by a, a flying axe head, And uh, rage, perhaps, fills his heart and his mind. And he can't see clearly. So why is it that the Lord appoints these cities of refuge? Well, look at verse 3. In the midst of this kind of instability, it says that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there, and he may uh, have refuge there from the avenger of blood. And the same idea is repeated here in verse 9. This, of course, is not a provision for those who are guilty of murder to have a loophole or to hide. There's going to be an evaluation of the case. There's going to be a judgment so that righteousness will be done. But in the meantime, we want to make sure that uh, our emotions, which are usually imperfect, don't rule the day. Again, in the situation that I mentioned uh, down at the hospital, it is a beautiful thing when there's someone who's not emotionally connected is in charge of a charged environment. They have better eyes to see. And why is this? Well, it's because the Lord knows the way he's woven us together. Emotions are good and righteous things. But it's also not a good thing if the person who is uh, most emotionally invested in a traumatic situation is in charge. So the Lord tells us, be angry. Uh, and yet do not sin in Psalm 4. Uh, The provision here that is set forth is to make sure that the uh, family of the one who has been slain isn't the one who's in charge, if we can put it so uh, bluntly. The idea here is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. And we don't want the person who is most invested to necessarily be making the critical decisions that will have long-term implications. Pain does this to us, and God knows it. It it clouds our judgment. Um, There's a story I've shared before about a man who was a missionary in Haiti, and he used to come to a children's Bible club that I was in when I was a boy, and he would tell us the stories of the things that he had done. And uh, one of the things that he did in uh, this island nation where everybody chews on 
sugarcane uh, for their little treat uh, is he pulled teeth. They had teeth rotting right and left. And uh, he said when the, when the uh, door was open for his clinic, and he really wasn't a dentist by any means, he just had a pair of forceps and he knew how to pull teeth. And he knew that these people were desperately in pain very often. And so he would provide this service of yanking molars. Well, uh, this one man came up to him next in line, and he said his teeth were just caked with uh, tartar and plaque, and uh, he was looking at the man's uh, teeth, and he determined that he thought this one was the one that needed to be pulled, Uh, and the man who was the patient said, no, Dick, it's the one behind that, it's the one behind that. And Dick said, no, I, I don't think so. I think, I think it's this one. He said, no, no, it's the one behind it. And of course, the man is in agony and in pain, so Dick did what the man told him to do. And immediately after pulling that tooth, and if you've had a root canal, you know the pain and you know the relief that comes when you get treatment. Man chomped and he was still in great pain and agony. He said, Dick, I, I think you were right. I, I think it's the one in front. And so he pulled a second tooth. The man's judgment was clouded because of the intensity of the pain that he was enduring. What he really needed was an expert looking on from the outside who would help him to be able to evaluate the situation. We have these inabilities and God knows it. So he appoints cities of refuge. So uh, what we need to see here is that it's not for us to take vengeance into our own hands. The Lord tells us, he reminds us that, that vengeance is his. He's going to repay and he's going to use right systems in life to bring these things to pass. Well, the third thing then that we see is he, he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't say, well, don't do anything. He shows us the availability, thirdly, of the opportunity for justice and refuge. So again, you see this in verse two. He says, appoint the cities of refuge. And then in verses seven through nine, he appoints these and they are spaced evenly through the land. So there are three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west, and they're uh, somewhat equidistant. And there were roads that were going to be marked so that the person who has uh, committed this sort of sin unintentionally could flee. And uh, again, when the adrenaline was, was flowing, he would know exactly where to go, where he might find safety. These were uh, six of the 48 Levitical cities that were appointed. And so the Levites were in these particular cities. We don't know exactly how the Levites to dwell in these cities were appointed, but you can imagine it may very well have been that they looked for wise and godly leaders among the Levites to go to these six cities in particular so that there would be justice in the land. And this, of course, was given so that uh, these who had committed uh, these kinds of unintentional sins could flee there. It's a a place of safety that the Lord has provided. Uh, The temples uh, in times of old, even pagan temples, were known as places of safety. Uh, There was a sense that God himself uh, was looking on there and that he would know the things that happened. And so we have the picture of Adonijah in uh, Solomon's uh, early days as king who uh, had tried to take the throne from his brother. And when he realized he was in trouble, you remember what he did? He ran to the altar and we're told he grabbed hold of the horns of the altar. The the sense here was that there would be safety uh, there in the presence of God. And his brother did indeed uh, grant him that kind of safety. So this uh, place of, of uh, distance is provided so that emotions might subside and that a righteous judgment might be given. Now, 
How do we see this working out in uh, our own day? How do we take the general equity of this law? Well, one of the things we need to recognize is that when there's a traumatic event and when people are hurt, what we need initially is safety and we need space. Parents do this all the time. We take two children are fighting and what do we do with them? We send them to their rooms, right? So they don't do further damage to each other and so that we can sort things out. And uh, we see and we recognize as the, the judgment that will be made here that there's a, an acknowledgement uh, by our God that sometimes reconciliation, uh, even if uh, it hasn't been a sin that's been committed in, with a wrong sort of heart, reconciliation isn't going to come immediately. The, the basic principle here is that there is to be space between the offender and the one who has been offended so that Uh, that the Lord's grace and his mercy and his justice might be brought to bear for everyone. And so you can see how this might uh, apply to people in our community and in churches today. You you think about cases of divorce where um, sometimes in those tragic situations, there simply needs to be uh, separation. You can think of it uh, sometimes with regard to unjust business dealings where uh, two men or partners simply need to be separated for a season. You can think of it as well with other violent crimes. Again, we see it when there is something like a public police shooting. They, they don't take the two parties that are involved to the same hospital. Uh, There are all kinds of ways in which uh, these principles can be applied and they can be applied even in the church as well. And what we see in this ultimately is we we look beyond simply the material things that are uh, needs being met here. We see something of the wisdom of our God. We have a God who affords very available places of refuge and safety. And ultimately, we, as those who are lost in our sin, we can only find refuge in our God. And he provides it liberally. Wherever you are, wherever you exist in the land, you can come to him. If you know your guilt and you feel the weight of all of the things that you've done in life. Jesus himself promises that whoever comes to him, he's not going to cast off. That's in John chapter 6, verse 37. And when we find ourselves in trouble, the good news that you can take to heart is that your problems may not be solved all all of a sudden or all in one moment. But if you come to the Lord, he will give you refuge. He will give you protection. And he will guide and he will guard your soul and your life. And we as his people need to hear this. We need to hear that he provides this kind of order so that we might have life. Well, fourthly, we move on. We want to see next the dependability of the deliberative process. Dependability. We don't get this perfect in life all of the time, but there's a a sense of uh, trust that the people of God are to have uh, in this kind of process. And you see it here in verse four through six. This person who sins unintentionally, he flees to one of the cities, he stands at the gate, then he's going to explain his case to the elders of the gate. They take him into the city, they give him a place, and he remains with them. And then the avenger of blood who comes uh, uh, is not able to strike him in that moment, and they're able to adjudicate the case. Now again, as you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, you see if the person had uh, wrong motives and this sort of thing, he would be put to death. This is not a loophole. It's uh, simply 
uh, a tool that the Lord uses to show us how it is that the process is to move forward in principle. There was to be justice that was done. And you see this in terms of the elders of the city and the congregation adjudicating and judging the case. And uh, this has been true wherever uh, biblical law has helped to inform the laws of the land. It's a, it's a beautiful thing that we see. And through the course of the Reformation and books written like Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, the law of the king, uh, these kinds of principles have been thought about. They've expound, been expounded and unfolded. Uh, Francis Schaeffer is very fond to point out uh, the picture uh, painting in the Swiss Supreme Court building by Robert Paul in 1904. There are 12 judges who are seated around and uh, Lady Justice stands with a a sword in her hand. She's uh, sort of glowing in white and she has a sword in her hand and the sword is pointed down in front of the judges to the open Bible that is there. It's available for all to see. The point is this, the the scripture and the truth of it ought to be guiding even the judges as well as those uh, who are getting ready to have their cases judged. We have real freedom and there is real hope when we can depend upon these uh, institutions that the Lord has put in place. Uh, We have freedom in the Lord and in his word when we follow his law. Well, uh, moving on again here, then the the fifth ability that we see is the livability of the outcome. If we can use that word, the livability of the outcome Uh, for both the the family members of the one who was killed, as well as the one who uh, committed uh, this uh, uh, terrible and accidental act. What we see here is there's a positive vision for all of the parties to be healed in this particular case. Uh, One person has uh, noted that uh, this was, at the same time, a refuge and a prison. A person has killed someone unintentionally, but there are consequences for what the perpetrator has done in this particular case. And for the one who, the family of the the one who has uh, had so much taken away, uh, there is a sense of space that they receive and healing. Uh, So there's no death penalty. There's an acknowledgement that even to impose that wouldn't supply the sort of justice that can ultimately heal hearts. But there is time and there's space that is needed for the parties uh, to be able to heal. It has been said that in these kinds of situations, what is it that we do? We seek to do justice uh, and and bring about the appropriate penalty for the one who has been wronged, for the person who has lost things that can never be restored. We do what we can to help and to provide counsel and encouragement and support. But there are things that can never be restored on this earth. And that is why what we as the people of God have to offer is the gospel itself. That is the ultimate refuge that any person has. And then for the sake of the community, these processes are put in place so that the community might be able to go forward together. Uh, You'll also note that there's a a finality to this, and it's a a curious sort of thing here in verse 6 that is said that describes something of the livability of this process. The person who is found to be not guilty of hating a person in his heart, but nevertheless, having committed this kind of uh, manslaughter, he's to remain in this city of refuge, but note what comes after the comma, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. When the high priest dies, the person is to be able to move back home. 
Now, again, think about what this does to the person and the family members who have been so offended. They have to be getting ready for this. There has to be a certain healing that is coming to them and to their souls in this time. Uh, There are going to be other ways in which the community around them is going to have to be thinking about how it is that we're going to minister to these people. And it's very similar to the kinds of periods of mourning that were appointed for those who were grieving. Those who are grieving are often not able to think straight. And so these seasons of grieving are set apart so that everyone will be able to minister in appropriate kinds of ways. But then there comes a time when the days of mourning end. And that gives a sense of uh, new freedom to all of the parties to know how to respond. The person who's grieving knows and recognizes that they can't expect that everyone is going to be aware of their ongoing grief. And it also gives a, a signal to the rest of the community that there is a time to move on, even while continuing to be compassionate to the person who grieves. And so the Lord establishes all of these kinds of principles in his word to help guard our hearts so that we would help to be the refuge that the Lord provides for his people and ministers to those in these greatest places of need. But finally, we want to see that all of these things will be insufficient by themselves because we do live in a broken and fallen world and no amount of policies and procedures can bring help and healing ultimately. What we ultimately need is the one who has all ability, all ability to bring the kind of hope and refuge that is needed. And this is where, as you know, we have to flee to Christ himself. The book of Hebrews uh, talks about this. There's a sense here in which chapter 20, verse 6, probably is looking forward ultimately to the death of the high priest in the death of Christ. It doesn't say this explicitly, but you can see the theme being extracted. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28, you'll remember that it speaks of the former priests who were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. This is why the Old Testament priests weren't going to do, right? They kept dying. They had to die because of their own sins. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. But it's not that he continues forever simply because he is God. It's also that he continues in that office forever because he came and died. So listen to verse 25 and following. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The manslayer was going to be set free by the death of the high priest. And the principle is this, that you and I, brothers and sisters, in our guilt and our sin are set free by the death of our great high priest as well, who is alive today forevermore. 
And that is why the words of Hebrews chapter 6 then, one chapter earlier, are so meaningful to us. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, then get this, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God shows us how he wants life to be lived here on earth so that we might know his refuge. But we can't find it ultimately in these things. We can only find our refuge, even amidst the greatest traumas of life, by fleeing for refuge to the one that he has set before us. And when we do, what do we have? We not only have peace, but we also have this strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. To hold fast to that hope that is set before us of not a city of refuge merely here on earth, but a city whose builder and maker is God himself. A place where we will be without sin and without all of the impact of sin. The Lord wants us to taste of it here, but he wants us to look beyond it and to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ for refuge above all else. So let's do that, brothers and sisters. Lord, we come to you and we do flee to you for our refuge and for our hope. Lord, you know that the aches and the pains that so many here feel, various injustices that have been done in life, things that they can't escape, maybe things that they've done or things that have been done to them. And Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you would reveal to us how life ought to be lived here and how those things point to what is still beyond. So Lord, we thank you that you have given us yourself so that we might flee for refuge to you ultimately. And we thank you for the encouragement that there is to our souls in so doing. Bless us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.